You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. My name is Michael. I am one of the pastors here. Thanks for hanging out with us. Joke's on you. The focal passage is actually Exodus chapter 1 and 2. So, so uh, that's what we have to get into today. So, um, imagine with me, if you will, flying a plane across the Pacific Ocean. The year is 1937. You're with your navigator and no one else. You've accomplished much for humanity. You're well on your way to to being the first woman to circumnavigate, that is to fly around the globe, or uh, for you flat earthers to to transverse the disk. Um, The fog is thick. You are increasingly disoriented, but, but you're not exactly sure if you're on course or not. Now look, I've, uh, I, I ran out of gas once as a teenager, not my finest moment, but as an adult, I've almost ran out of gas many, many, many times. And every single time, it's usually like uh, late from work, going to soccer practice, uh, we're going to give it a shot, and then I'm just like, oh gosh, and then I'll practice, I'm thinking, I hope we can get home, and that's happened many times. Uh, but, but even that, like the worst thing that's going to happen is, is the car's going to die, and I'm going to call somebody and say, hey, can you bring me some gas? That's, that's not this scene, right? You're not finding the land masses below you as your navigator predicted you would. There's, there's no sign of the Howland Islands, which is what you're looking for. Time goes on. Your heart rate increases. You're, you're in distress, so you radio for help, and you get no response, none whatsoever. You repeat your known whereabouts, your coordinates. You call for help. You, you mayday. This is who I am. This is where I am. Help. Are you there? Crickets. While there are conspiracy theories plenty, we've hit on two already, uh, this is, of course, the account of Amelia Earhart. And, and the reality was that there were people on the other side of that radio, and they actually heard her, and they actually responded. But because of a malfunction, she could not hear them. So, so when we are in distress, when we're broken down or, or otherwise, we make calls. And what we want more than anything else is just reassurance of being heard and a calming voice to answer like, like we've seen or maybe experienced. Mom, I'm in trouble and I need you. And mom says, maybe it's okay. We'll figure it out, right? Or, or you did something stupid and you, and you call your friend and you say, man, I, I messed up. And your friend says, hey, I got you. I got you, bro. That's, that's what we want, something on the other side of that. Amelia Earhart, she did not have that. And the reality is, you're not lost over the Pacific Ocean in 1937. I'm aware of that. And you've probably never even been in a situation remotely close, although maybe some of you have, where where you would call for Mayday without a response as your fuel light flashes and invisibility wanes and there's no sight of land, but, but you've probably cried out when life seemed out of hand and all you had was hope. 
the journey that we together get to embark on uh, today through this series in, in Exodus, Captives Set Free, uh, it will take us to all of those places and many more. It will clarify for us with, with like some tangible uh, understanding our Christian faith. For those who have walked with Christ for some time or no time at all, we get to see God's work. It will validate the true work of Jesus, and, and we will see ourselves in the rescued, and we will see ourselves in the villain, and we will see our need, and we will see God's provision. And, and so main idea, uh, we have a great need. And even when it seems like no one hears, God knows. So to help get our heads around where we're at and what's going on, I'm going to read uh, uh, the intro to the book of Exodus in the Story of Redemption Bible, and it goes like this, right? This is the setup. For those of you who don't know, there's, there's the Bible, and there's the book of Genesis, the beginnings, and we preached through that over the last several years, and we finished up earlier uh, last year, and, and uh, we're picking up in the book of Exodus, and this kind of helps get us all caught up to speed. At the end of Genesis, everything looked so good. The promises God had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob looked for all the world like they were being fulfilled in the life of Joseph. He was the ruler of all Egypt. He had blessed the world through his faithfulness to God, and before he died, he looked into the eyes of his sons, two early members of a nation that would eventually number in the millions. But the happy times would not last long. When the book of Exodus opens... Some 400 years have passed since the end of Genesis, and the descendants of Jacob no longer enjoy their favored status in Egypt. Instead, they've been forced by the Egyptians into grinding slavery. The book of Exodus is an epic adventure, story with a a cruel villain, an unlikely and reluctant hero, magic and intrigue, setbacks and triumphs, near misses and a great escape, and a journey Through a scorching wilderness, you really will not find a more exciting book in the Bible than this one. But at its heart, Exodus is more than just an adventure. It is the story of two very different nations coming into close contact with the one living and true God. For one of those nations, the encounter becomes a shattering experience. Pharaoh's crowned head is bowed low. Egypt's gods are defeated, and the nation experiences the wrath of God Almighty. But for the other nation, though, for Israel, this encounter with God becomes an exhilarating experience of deep love from and dramatic rescue by a God of unimaginable power. In fact, what takes place in this book will provide a touchstone and pattern for God's dealings with humanity throughout the rest of the Bible, The book picks up exactly where Genesis left off, with Joseph's family coming to join him in Egypt. So, uh, a spoiler alert before we get rolling. Exodus means mass departure of something, in this case, people, right? Uh, The Hebrews would have called this book, These Are the Names, because that's how it starts, and that's what they did. Uh, It was written about 450 B.C., or BCE, however you like it, uh, with maybe a a 20-year gradient in there somewhere. It includes some characters that you may have heard of, Moses, the country and the nation of Egypt, Pharaoh, plagues, the Red Sea, Passover, the Ten Commandments. 
And all this stuff written by uh, Moses predominantly is, is a narrative, which means it's written as story. And there's, there's law in there as well, and we'll see that. But largely it's written as, as a, a document account of, of history. And what we're doing in this series through, the next, uh, through June is we're just walking through the first 18 chapters. And what we're going to see is, is the rescue. And so we have Exodus, captives set free, and, and we're journeying together um, till June, I believe. But then, then we'll take a break and we'll pick up probably early next year. And, and we'll finish the, the remaining 21 God's people. So before we jump in, and we will in just a minute, I promise... A few notes, kind of a, of preface, given the style of this book, to help us interpret. Now, you might know this to be true, that you don't write a grocery list like you write a poem. And you don't write uh, a letter to uh, a friend or an email or a text like you write uh, a list of classroom rules as a teacher. All those things look very different. And so, the Bible's written in, in ways that are very different, one from Another. And what we see in this is we are reading a storyline. And all of this builds together from cover to cover for, for one story. But in this in particular, we, we journey with and, and we are reading a, a story. It's true because it's from God, but, but it's also through man. So, so there's somebody sitting down to, to write this thing. So there's an element of intentionality in how the historic account unfolds. You might think that, that God just breathes uh, the knowledge that would be the scripture and it, and it happens outside of any context and, and somebody just, oh, message from the Lord and they write it down. But that's, that's not the way that it works. It works through context and, and through the lives that these people live and, and the way that the writer invites us to see God and to see God's interaction with his people. It isn't random and, and it isn't just chaotic or robotic, but it's an account. And so there's intentionality that we get to see understanding that this, this was written as a, uh, as a literary work for us to understand who God is. So we will see patterns like this, exile and return from exile and provision. And we see that between God and his people over and over and over and over again throughout uh, this book, but, but also throughout the whole scripture. We see that God alone rescues. We see that God alone provides. We see that he is greater than we are. We see uh, this isn't only the story of the Jews, but it's, but it's our story as well as God expanded his family not only to the Jews, the nation of Israel, but to all who would call upon the name of Jesus that would trust his life, his death, his resurrection, that we might be his and that he might be ours. There are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus and all but seven are referenced in the New Testament, which is kind of a big deal. That is a lot of New Testament writers looking back and saying, this is our God. And so it is, uh, as I said, it is written as narrative, not as an epistle. If you look at the New Testament, you see some pastor, Paul or Peter or James, writing to a church. And they're, like those you read and you apply pretty quickly. Because it's like, hey, you should do this and you shouldn't do that. But this isn't that way. And so it's a little bit dangerous if we try to read it and just then bypass the context and apply ourselves in that. So what we get to do is we get to observe. So as we learn the Bible, as we're students of God's word, we get to observe. We get, we get to just see it. Right? I encourage you to do that on your own. And also, that's what we're going to do. We get to observe. But then we get to, and, and as I consider 
uh, preaching and, and as we build up men and women who, who teach God's word, we, we say it like this, we get to observe, we get to declare, we get to connect. And so what that means, we get to see it and then we just keep boiling it down and we say, what is going on here? What is going on here? And we get to declare it and say, ah, this is what God is doing. This is what's happening. This is what the people are doing. Then, we, then and only then, we get to connect with it. And we get to relate with it. And we get to say, gosh, there are these universal truths that we see in God's people way long time ago, thousands of years ago, that we in this room still experience in the same way. It looks quite different. But in the same way, we have the same God and the same experiences uh, even though our, our culture and context is a bit different, then and only then, we get to apply. And we get to say, what does this mean for me? How does this change me? So, so we join here where Genesis gives way to Exodus. We see fruitful multiplication. From the beginning, God said to Adam and Eve, go, be fruitful and multiply. Make a, a whole bunch of babies and, and expand my glory throughout my creation. And, and they did that. And, and then we see uh, up to this point, God's people are increasing and they're always keeping the promise of God in mind that he's going to make a great nation of them. So that's always in, in front. We have about 70 people from 12 sons of, of Jacob. And then we have the beginning of this in the first seven verses of, of Exodus. We see that things are great. There is fruitful multiplication. Like God said it and, and they did it and, and God's multiplying, and, but, but this is what we know. When things go well for, for Israel, we can expect as the pages turn that, gosh, there are, there are bad things uh, just around the corner. And maybe you would say, yeah, I feel the same way. Maybe you felt that way, that, that smooth sailing uh, often leads to self-dependence. And for those who are in Christ, self-dependence is the last thing that we need in our life. Right, And so, uh, here's what we need. Right, and If you're like a point taker, this is point number one. We have a need for rescue. We have the need for rescue. Now, Amelia Earhart may have felt that her skill and her competence and, and her longtime navigator and, and her aircraft that was funded by Purdue University, they were enough to get through anything. Right? They, they'd proven that. But at some point, the tides begin to turn, and when her repeated cries and her pleas were reflected back with silence, I'm sure at some point, she came to the end where hope was lost, and she, she, she knew it's over. It, it, this is it. And as good as the situation seemed for God's people, things were about to take a turn, a long, winding turn that landed them in this horrible scenario. Slaves to cruel masters and, and fleeting hope of ever being free, but even more than that, of ever being free to worship God as they would desire. So, so kind of like the, the feeling in the air would be uncertainty and, and fear. That's what's in the air. Time passes, 400 years, there's a new Pharaoh, he doesn't know Joseph, he doesn't know their story, he doesn't care about them, and if you know anything about the way history is recorded, uh, the Egyptians wouldn't tell of a great one who wasn't Egyptian, right? They would tell of the great Egyptians, and they would make themselves seem bigger and better, and and um, and, and bigger than life. And so there's there's a lot of unknowns, and as as 
Moses writes this, he gives us like a, a character reset. And maybe you've heard the saying, in a hundred years, all new people. Right? And that can be really despairing or it can be really encouraging. Like, hey, in a hundred years, all new people. Hey, okay. Right? And so he kind of takes us there and he says, gosh, there, there's a reset. Uh, it, it's like a, a new day has dawned. And there's, there's unknowns, but real quickly, those unknowns turn into knowns. And this new Pharaoh... He is fearful of the Hebrews. He's fearful of their power. He's fearful of what will become if, if they rise up and join a, a, an army that's attacking. And so he says, let us deal shrewdly with them. Right? This is bad news. So, so we jump in Exodus chapter 1 verse 8. I want to read through 22 just to kind of help set some context. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. He had no idea what was coming. But his his fear was substantiated. Uh, so, So come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in, in kinds of work in the field, In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Pharaoh um, was just not having it. And and you can tell that he begins to operate out of some paranoia. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son... You shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall live. Uh, she shall live. So, so we see Pharaoh increasingly looking behind him and, and growing in fear. He says, all right, it's not working. That, that we're just making conditions really difficult for them. They continue to be fruitful and multiply. So here's what we're going to do. Like, he, he makes kind of a backdoor deal. Hey, when you go to, to help them give birth, if it's a son... Just make sure that that he doesn't live. But the midwives, they feared God. And they they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and he said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? Now there's all kinds of irony, gosh, so much and and funny stuff and, and connections all over that, that Moses would have us see in this. But, but isn't it humorous that, that he tells the midwives, hey, like, take care of the, the boys, uh, make sure they're dead. And, and then, then he sees that they're not doing that. And, and then he calls them and he says, hey, what's going on here? And they probably could have told Pharaoh anything at all about the process of giving birth because he probably has no idea, right? I'm guessing he's pretty far removed. So they're like, oh, yeah, uh, uh, about that. And here's what they say. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, you know, Pharaoh, they're quite different. Okay. 
For, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife come, uh, comes to them. So he's like, no, no, they, right? They really pop those things out. <laughs> so God dealt with the midwives, all right? Now, usually when you see that, that's a bad thing. If your parents dealt with you, like, you, you never said that, like, I, I was really kind to my, my sibling, and my parents dealt with me. No, but that's what we see, right? So God dealt with the midwives, and, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families, which was unique for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. So what was a, a backdoor kind of quiet riot against the Israelites? Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you, sh- you shall let every daughter live. So, so now it's just a public riot. It's just, hey, look. We've done our part. It's not working. If you people have any kids and they're males, you throw them into the river. Okay. So we see things are not going so well. Heavy burdens, right? Building projects, bricks and mortar, uh, ruthless masters. God's people continue to flourish. And even in the face of of severe Father uh, Tertullian, blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Right? And that's what we have here. We have blood of martyrs, and we see that what that's actually doing is, is growing God's people all the more. But, but finally, Pharaoh, he orders all Hebrew sons to be cast into the Nile, right? There is great need for rescue. And, and as some commentators point out, the Jews are slaves to cruel masters, which which wields its dominance over them in, in nearly every sphere of life, political slavery, economic slavery, social slavery, spiritual slavery. This is how darkness works. It starts from a place of, of fear, and then it works to oppress and reduce and, and wring out identity. That's what Pharaoh's trying to do. He's trying to, he's trying to reduce them from their identity. And he lets the, the women live because they're going to marry ultimately Egyptians and, and the, the, the people that, that come from the God of the Hebrews will be no more. He, he's eliminating their identity as God's people. So, so we see through their tangible experience with our own eyes as we read, visual representation of the most oppressive master of all time, sin. The powers of darkness within and the powers of darkness without. Sin is the seed of self-governance. Of replacing God. Pharaoh considering himself a deity, but living in fear of, of, the, of the Hebrews. Every aspect of captivity and oppression and slavery and ruthless rule and fearful discrimination and arrogance and minimizing and all of these things, it's all just fruit from from this root, self-governance, replacing God. Jesus says it this way in John 8, uh, of, of what we become slaves to. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And, and Peter says in 1 Peter 2, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. 
we see in Titus 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. See, that slavery, it can take every form. Humanity is, is really, really great at corrupting what's, what's good and making good things bad. Or, or as others have said, making good things God things. Things that were from God for His glory. And we replace the, the creator of all things for the created, the creations, and we worship them instead of God. We are really, really good at that. And, and we might even see that in this story in Exodus. Uh, so, so maybe you would tell me that you are slave to no man or no thing. You would say, Michael, you, you got it wrong. I'm not like that. Uh, I'm my own person. I, I do as I please. I would say, that's great. Uh, or, or maybe I would say, uh, you're, is there a chance that you're deceived? Because we look at slavery and we think, yeah, nobody's going to put me in chains and make me do something I don't want to do. But what if, what if because of sin's work, you delighted in those chains. See, we, we could look at a, a hundred examples, but, but just to take a few, uh, the idea of image. What you look like, what people think of you. What you wear, what you eat, what you post about. Do you do those things? Uh, do, do those things flow from freedom? Or do those things flow from obligation so that you might please? And maybe it's yourself. And maybe it's everyone else. Or maybe it's just that one person. They dictate the terms of your life. What about, what about work? Man, I read this week and I'm continuing to read... Uh, on, on just the idea of Sabbath and trying to figure out what that looks like. I read, uh, the author was talking about the play between uh, work and rest. And, and he said, rest without work has a name. It's laziness. That's what rest without work is. But work without rest has a name as well, and, it, and it's called slavery. So I think, gosh, I, I like to work. Maybe you like to work. Maybe you put chains on every day of your life. In the name of your freedom, you become slave to something that you love that's not intended to be your master. Or, or maybe it's fear, right? Are, are you Pharaoh fearing the loss of power, uh, fearing the loss of control, the loss of, of freedom? Or do you fear the one who can destroy both body and and soul. See, we don't have to look hard to find out what we willingly become slaves to. And in the Hebrews, they didn't know what God was up to. They felt like they were in the dark, flying blind. The only thing that they had as a map was, was the promise of God. And all seems lost. How can this be? What about the promise? But God said, and, and and what we're drawn to see, again, as, 
as we read this story is, is there's like some like quaking of the earth or there's like the, the phoenix rising out of the ashes or, or the dark night rising. There's like a literary shift and what we see is, is the scene cuts and, and we were taken to this, the second point, the unlikely hero. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this 1993 classic Cool Runnins, right? But if you haven't seen it, you need to check it out. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time. Not sure if it holds up. But uh, in that, there's this Jamaican bobsled team. And Jamaica, uh, Jamaica is a country, and it's a warm climate, right? Oceanic, bohemian, I think. And, uh, and bobsledding, if you don't know anything about that, that happens on uh, ice in cold climates. And you get in this thing, and you go down this, uh, this track, and it's, it's ice. It's very cold. And so those two things kind of don't really mesh very well. And so you have the story of the Jamaican bobsled team, and, and they qualify for the Olympics, and, and maybe you're just getting ready to see it. I don't want to spoil anything for you, although you've had some time. Uh, it doesn't work out, right? There's some technical, uh, mechanical issues. Man, it's a riveting scene. My heart's racing just thinking about it. Gosh, they keep showing the bolt and the bolt's jiggling. Anyway, uh, but here's what you find when you're watching it. You're just rooting for these people. You're just like, it doesn't make any sense. Jamaican bobsled, it doesn't get any better than this. You just want them to win and you're, you're just rooting for these people, right? Who doesn't love the underdog, the, the unlikely, the unexpected victor? And I, and I know it, it's like maybe too soon, but, but Tom Brady won a whole bunch of stuff. Like football, there's a thing, and there was a game yesterday, and, and he lost. That's good news, right? Who doesn't love that? Steelers, Patriots out after the first day of playoffs. I mean, gosh, it's a gift. We just stop there. Praise God, go home. So, so as we are drawn in to understand the true nature of what's happening, we see this, that Egypt is the greatest power of the day on the face of the earth. They are not, like, not mighty in a small way. They are, they are mighty. Right? And this, this Pharaoh, he is, he, is, he is God to them. Like, like partial deity. So, so we see the resource, nor the numbers, nor might, nor technology of the Hebrews could stand and an uprising from them meant certain death and destruction and, and just decimation of, of God's people. And there was no other plausible hope. And, and anyone would know this. But God didn't know that. God knew what he was talking about in the book of Genesis when he told Jacob, Hey, don't fear going to the land of Egypt because I will be with you. When they look back and they're saying, this can't be. Has he forgotten? Is he not listening? Is, is Egypt and Pharaoh even greater than he is? As we observe this journey of our ancestors, we get to glean these obstacles and these patterns that we share with them. We are slaves. And the hill to conquer is so great that if there is any hope of freedom at all, it will not come through our own hands, but through divine energy. We need a rescuer. And if you've ever seen any hero film at all, enter the origin 
story. And you might think that that's like a, a, a pop culture thing, origin stories. But, dude, Moses was writing origin stories way back here, right? And, and I, I, I can't see this any more clearly than what it is. So, so when we look at these things, we have to think that way. All right, check it out. Uh, two, I'm reading one through ten. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, literally the word is, it is good. Right? Some throwbacks to Genesis time and time again. She hid him three months. Why'd she hide him? Because they, they had a bounty on them. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of uh, bulrushes, you're all familiar with these terms, and, and daubed it with bitumen, bitumen and pitch. Don't say that quickly. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Now, we see this very calculated plan. And I want you to know that, that as I understand, the, the word for this thing that, that she puts him in is used twice. In the Old Testament, maybe in all the scriptures, one is the ark. Another is this little basket. That's pretty cool. So, so this very calculated plan begins to unfold, and his sister, that's Moses' sister, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So they put him in a basket, and they let him float down the Nile. Now the daughter of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, hey, kill all the male babies, his daughter, she comes down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, you might think it's Pharaoh's daughter. She could just left him be, kill him, whatever, but, but she, didn't, she didn't do that. Then his sister says, she's lurking, hey, I see you. Would you like me? Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. That's Mo- well, it's not Moses yet, but this baby's mom. Right? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Or uh, essentially the word is um, to be drawn out of. Some more irony there, right? Foreshadowing. So here's the deal. Pharaoh commissions the death of all the... uh, Male boys, Moses' mom, puts him in a basket. They concoct this thing, and now you have the daughter of Pharaoh paying Moses' mom to take care of Moses. And, and from what I read, culturally, this probably happened for about three years. His mom getting paid to take care of her son. And at that point, she gives him in the hand, and we've seen this with Joseph, right? So now Moses, a Hebrew, is in the household of Pharaoh. So we, we have this idea of origin story, and we see humble beginnings, and we see character development 
for real. Like, from a literary perspective, we see uh, some, some conflict arise. And if we read on in the next 10, 11 verses, here's what we see. We see a couple scenes. And if you're thinking like a movie, and you're thinking backstory, you have this baby. And then the scene cuts. And then you have, like, he's like a seven-year-old. Right? And then you have, like, ah, oh, present day. And the story begins. That, that's exactly what is happening here. But, but the, in the origin story, you figure out what's going to be really important for the character Later on in the present, that's what we're figuring out. So here's what we learn in this, these uh, kind of segues of character development. We see a scene where, where Moses is, uh, he's like a foreman uh, around the work that's going on, and he sees an Egyptian oppressing uh, uh, a Hebrew, and it says he looked to the left, and he looks to the right, and he, he kills the Egyptian, and he buries him in the sand, Right? And I love that he looked to the left. And he's like, see, that's, see, here's where it's dangerous if we say, no, it's in the Bible. See, if we don't know how to interpret the scripture, then you just go kill your coworker. Or, or you apply some other that teaches us about who God is and who we are in light of him. So he kills the Egyptian later on that week. Moses is there, and there are two Hebrews, and they're fighting. And he's like, hey, guys, well, man, let's break it up. And one of them says, what, what are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses is like, well, dang, secret's out. I should have looked back. <laughs> but, but, see, but we see some foreshadowing that Moses, he's a, he's a righteous defender. He defended the Hebrew. And now he's trying to protect them from themselves. And what do they do? They turn on him like he's the problem. Like he's misunderstood. And that happens a lot in his life. So then he flees because he finds out Pharaoh finds out. And Pharaoh wants, uh, he's got a, a bounty on his head again. And so he's like, I'm out of here. He goes to this place called Midian. And then we see this. It's another scene in the character development. Scene four maybe. Uh, and he's at this watering hole, just chilling. But you see, you begin to see his nature, that he's like not going to stand for injustice. And there are these women that come up, and they're sisters, and they come to get water. But the shepherds, you know you can't trust the shepherds. I'm just kidding. Like I, maybe you can't. But, but they seem like, no, like, it seemed like they would dismiss them and say, hey, uh, we're getting our water first. No, but we were here first. But, and Moses said, whoa, 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 guys, back off. These women were here first. Women get their water and they move on and they go home. This is beautiful. And they tell their dad. Dad says, how'd you get back here so soon? Normally, like, you're gone all day. And they're like, you wouldn't believe it. There was this guy. And you know how the shepherds, they're punks? Well, like, he stuck up for us. And he made sure that, that we held our place in line or whatever. And like any good dad with some single daughters, he's like, why didn't you invite him back for dinner? It's exactly what it says, for real. What is wrong with you? Go get him. So they, they go get him and bring him back, and he has dinner, and like, cut to scene in the character development origin story. He takes one of them to be his wife, and he has a kid. So we see the birth of Moses, and the growth of Moses, and, and the flight of Moses, and then and we see him poised to engage. Right? We, we see the scene is set and Moses is clearly the delivering 
type. He's a righteous defender. He's like a justice warrior. And tensions are high. And tensions are set. And we're all caught up. And while we know, as we read this, that all this stuff is happening, do you know who doesn't know what's going on? The Hebrews. They don't know any of this. We're looking at this, and we can put two and two together, and we're like, ah, yeah, I see where this is going. Even if you don't know what happens, you're like, ah, I can see where this is going. But, but they didn't see where it was going, right? And, and if, if I know you like I know me, I bet that we can relate. Like, this is hard, and I don't see any way out. Like, hello, please. Is anybody there? But when we remember the story, we see that it's bigger than than just one instance of of our life or one moment in in these people's life, Uh, one moment of, of dark silence. It's the picture. It's the story of God and His people. And God is still unfolding this story. And we are still His people. So consider... Your struggles, whether it's, it's family disposition or it's slavery to overwhelming sin whose chains bind you. And you say, I'm, I'm done. No longer will you have a handle on me. And yet you find yourself being drawn back. Or maybe it's moments of distress and you, you cry out or, or you're flying through the unknown and you cry out or you're in over your head and you cry out. Or if, if we zoom way out, there are people in this room that, that look and they see in themselves ancestral slavery like the Hebrews. Right? We see uh, your people held in slavery for generations, their identity taken, power depleted, hope faint. Wherever you find yourself in this story, the question is, have you sought God? Have you called for May Day? Like Amelia Earhart, as I understand, she said, uh, I will repeat this every 60 seconds. Here's, here's my last known coordinate. I, we, we don't know where we're at. We need help. I will repeat this every 60 seconds. I'm Amelia Earhart. May Day. We're in trouble. We need help. Here's my last... She's doing that so that if they're flipping through the channels or if there's something going on, that they, they catch it. And they say, we didn't catch it. She's, she's persistent in her pursuit to be heard. Have you sought God? And if you have, do you trust His promises? He, he, he will deliver you. He has delivered you. He will never leave you. He will, he will nev- you will never find yourself forsaken. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean that you will live forever on this earth. That doesn't mean that all of your wildest dreams will come true. It can't mean that. And you might say, well, yeah, I tried that, and she died. Here's the thing. God never promised that we would live forever on this earth. Which, which leads us into a real danger as we seek out God and and the truth of his word. The promises that we trust have to be from God. Not ones that we just fashion in our own heads. And he's not going to abandon his plan, his promise. But that doesn't mean that he's going to 
to validate every one of your desires. And that might be painful. But that truth allows us to hold dear. We are in deep need of rescue. And God has been at work and he continues to be at work in unlikely ways. And we see in this and we will see many other Christ connections, parallels of striking uh, similance that, that we get to see to our own rescue and our own redemption, not for a nation, but for all who believe and call upon the name. Uh, there, there's this podcast, it's 40 Minutes in the Old Testament, and they walk through this. It's been so helpful. But, but one of them says, in Christ we see Israel reduced to one person. So as we see the story of Israel, and we see all of this condensed to one person, we see all of these things unfold. And so when we begin to see this, we see Jesus in Luke 24, after the resurrection, some people are saying, hey, he's dead, he's dead, where's he at? And, and he takes off the, 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 the nose and, and, and mustache and glasses, and he says, oh, you mean I'm dead? No, I'm not dead. I'm alive. Right? And you can have life in me. And you know what he did? He sat down and he opened up the scriptures, and he told them, beginning with Moses, all of the ways how he is the fulfillment of this book. So it's not a stretch for us to say that that the greater version of the greatest underdog rescue, it has a similar origin. In the beginning was the Word, and it was with God, and it was God, and it was Jesus. And we just came out of Christmas, which tells us of the humble beginnings of Jesus as a human. He too had a bounty king as a child. He too escaped death by God's provision, his purpose, his plans, his promise. Why did God do that? Well, we have a great need, and even when it seems like no one hears, God knows, right? This is the last thing, the God who hears. See, this is where the real story begins to take shape. And all of this that we share today was was backstory, right? We aren't slaves left to free ourselves. We aren't helpless and hopeless on our own. We have the God of the universe for us, listening to us. He is aware of you. If I may, another classic film, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. There's the scene, and the, sh- the short of it is some dude shrunk the kids, right? The kids are on a table. One of them is in a bowl of cereal. And the dad's, he's talking about it's so dangerous out in the backyard. There are bugs out there. There are things like, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen. And the kids are on the table. Dad! Like screaming, help, they're tiny. One of them is literally like almost being devoured in the Cheerios and he's swimming, right? It's great CGI work. At one point, the dad says, he's gazing off, he says, we just got to keep our eyes open. Right before them, hey, please, no. The, the only one who could help was incapable of hearing Because he was unaware. But look, our God is not unaware. And whether you're swimming in a bowl of cereal because you're shrunk, because you're you're flying through the fog, or you're struggling with sin, the conclusion of this second chapter sets up all the other stuff, and it brings this hope to bear. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for him up to God. And God heard their groaning 
and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. See, if Amelia Earhart had heard somebody on the other line, whether, whether she landed safely or not, can you imagine the hope of just a simple reply? We, we hear you. Moses, playing narrator, he gives hope to the weary by reminding us that God, God knew and God knows. And in the Bible, when God remembers, it's referring to a call to action. It doesn't simply, he's not cloud gazing. Yeah, I remember that. It's, it's, it means that he acts. God heard their groaning. He remembered his people. He remembers his promise. He saw and God knew. The rest of this book is the unfolding of what God does about it. We have a great need, and even when it seems like no one hears, God knows. We get to respond. We can take communion. If we're in Christ, this is for us. We get to remember and declare God's work through Jesus on the cross, his life, his death, his resurrection, his body that was broken for us, his blood spilled for us. Right? If you're not in Christ, that's not for you. But we would love to pray with you, care for you. And, and no matter what, we would love to bear your burden in prayer. You can pray at the prayer bench over there. You can sit right where we are. You can stand up and sing with the band. You can pray with somebody by that red tree, and I'll be back by that one. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your goodness to us, your provision, the fact that, that you hear and you see and you know. That our distress is not a surprise to you. Like Israel was no more and your promises, they were lies. But we see that you work, that you have plans that, that we don't know. That you're at work in, in 10,000 ways and at any given time we might be aware of, of two or three of those ways. Would you let us lean into you, draw near to who you are, to the promises that you do give us. In Jesus' name.